1999, I was in, in MSF headquarters in Paris in a very controversial and extremely emotional meeting that was, had been going on already for two days. There was the first time that there was really an attempt to work out some agreements with the pharmaceutical industry regarding access to patented drugs for people in poor countries that couldn't afford the patent scale pricing schemes. At the time, none of the HIV AIDS drugs were affordable uh, for anybody that was outside of the richest countries on the planet. And um, frankly, none of the drugs for heart disease, cancer, anything you could think of, were available if you lived in a poor country. We'd been negotiating with the pharmaceutical industry for days. Things had gotten so heated that there had been shouting matches and twice the representative of the International Pharmaceutical Manufacturers Association had threatened to march out and never speak to MSF again. And at the most tense moment, we suddenly heard outside and downstairs a bunch of screaming. And it sounded like there'd been a massive automobile accident or something, and the whole meeting sort of froze. What is all that screaming? And then one of the MSF participants came running up the stairs, and he was so overwhelmed by what he had just heard that made everybody scream that he couldn't speak consistently in any language. So he was in Flemish, French, and English, trying to explain that MSF had just won the Nobel Peace Prize. It was a wonderful day. We partied for 48 hours. And I, it is delightful, therefore, to share with Sophie Delaunay this moment. Uh, Sophie has, for 18 months now, been running uh, MSF USA, um, which I think is your first assignment in a rich country in all your years with <laughs> MSF. Where were you that day when you heard that your organization had won the Nobel Peace Prize? Um, can you hear me well? Yes. Uh, I was in China. At that time, I was head of mission for, for MSF there. And uh, of course, okay. they can't hear. So maybe I will take this one. Or? Then we should get rid of this because we'll get feedback. Can you hear me better? All right. Let's try with this one. Otherwise, we'll, sh we'll switch with the other one. So I was in China. I was in Beijing at that time. And um, of course, I received the news from the headquarters in Paris. I could hardly hear them through the phone because everybody was screaming around. <laughs> and within a few minutes, of course, the journalists in China started to call. We tried to uh, inform the teams. But the most moving thing for me at that, that very moment was that <coughs> I received uh, a phone call from one of our Chinese partners from the Ministry of Health in the Guangxi province. And he was someone who had been really involved in trying to connect MSF uh, with the Chinese government, getting us work there, having authorization, pushing for us to introduce ARV treatment in China at a time when there was a complete denial of the disease, etc. And he called me and he said, have you seen Sophie? We won the Nobel Peace Prize. And I, I really like the way he reacted because it showed that it was not the organization wi winning a prize, it was really the idea and this idea of solidarity that, uh, um, you know, and this, this movement around, around this idea that was recognized through the Nobel Peace Prize. And not only that, but for us in the, in the days and weeks to come, one major challenge was really to uh, uh, well, express, of course, our uh, appreciation for the prize, but also to uh, insist on the fact that we had not received the Nobel Peace Prize because we were uh, an organization working for peace, right? We are um, a peaceful organization, but we're not a pacifist organization. And it was a very difficult message to deliver to the public that uh, we, we understood it was a recognition of our work, but we wanted to make it clear that we were not, never in any country we were part of the peace process. Well, let's step back then and explain that. Because next year, MSF will be four decades old, which is hard to believe, really. And it really grew out of 
a hideous civil war situation in Nigeria in which the people of Biafra, uh, a specific minority tribe inside of the, the British borders, the British created borders of Nigeria, was basically being starved to death. And a small group of European, specifically French uh, physicians, were very moved by that experience. What was it they felt they needed to do? One of whom, by the way, is now the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Bernard Kouchner for France, under Sarkozy. What, what was it that they were trying to accomplish? Why did they feel that working through the Red Cross or uh, any of a number of pre-existing humanitarian organizations was not satisfactory? Well, I think precisely you need to put this um, their engagement, their commitment at that time uh, within the context at that time. And the reason why these doctors and journalists decided to create this NGO, uh, this uh, non-governmental organization, uh, was that they had a frustration being working, you know, in the Red Cross at that time for which neutrality was a key uh, aspect of the, of the work. And they had witnessed how you know, uh, humanitarian aid or the lack of humanitarian aid was used as an instrument of controlling the population, an instrument of war. And they thought that it was important for an organization not just to provide um, support and assistance, but also to bear witness about uh, uh, what we experience on the ground. So this is why they uh, created MSF, both to provide assistance and to be able to speak out when necessary. So not to be completely neutral. So not to be completely neutral. And this is the tricky aspect. That is, uh, what we've learned over, uh, through these 40 years is that we need to stay as impartial as possible in order not to be targeted, not to be considered as a party to the conflict in order to access the areas, you know, where uh, you cannot access if you don't negotiate with all the belligerents. So what we are trying to do is to make a clear distinction between the neutrality, the sanctity of the health facility. That is, we don't want anybody with a weapon to enter a health facility. This is really our big battle in Afghanistan at the moment. We're trying to maintain the neutrality of the facility. But at the same time, uh, we bear witness of what we see, right? Uh, if you look at our website, uh, we describe what we see constantly. There has been some situation when we've, we've, we felt we had to express our outrage because there was nobody on the ground, because the, the world needed to know what was going on. Uh, but we do it in a manner that do, does not participate. You know, of course, we are a political actor like any other organization, but we're not taking a specific side. We all accept the side of the victims, and this is the one we, we take, and we decide on our own when we'll speak out or not. This point you made about Afghanistan is a really cru crucial one. Uh, we're involved in a war in Afghanistan, we the Americans and NATO, in a war in Afghanistan in which it is the policy of our armed forces to tightly link development, foreign assistance, health assistance with military operations. And it's a very dangerous place to work, especially if you're not going to have the military surrounding your medical clinic and protecting you, but at the same time, it is your policy as an institutional and as an organization to not be, uh, so to speak, securitized or militarized. So I know that you have lost quite a number of MSF people, assassinated, kidnapped, brutalized. How do you walk this line between protecting your people, being able to execute programs in places like Afghanistan, Somalia, uh, Yemen, uh, uh, Burma and so on, uh, and at the same time uh, not take uh, outrageous risks. That's a very difficult balance to find. Actually, we believe that even though uh, not taking side in conflict is not, um, you know, the, 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 the magic bullet, right? Uh, it's not going to protect you, but it's the best protection that you can have. 
because if you are perceived as part of one political or military agenda, then de facto you become a target. And I think that what has happened in Afghanistan is that because of this permanent confusion, even in the rhetoric of we're conducting a humanitarian war, the military is providing humanitarian assistance, this has completely blurred the line between impartial assistance and the military agenda of some governments. And don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to oppose the virtue of humanitarian action against you know, the cynicism of politics or military. I think everyone has a role to play. But I think that everyone should stay in its own role. And what, trying to do, what we're trying to do in Afghanistan is really to ask the US military um, the, the NATO forces were trying to ask, we're talking also to the Taliban at higher and local level, we're talking to the community leaders and trying to explain them that we're not part of any agenda. We just want to be able to vaccinate kids uh, if they need to be vaccinated to treat the victims of the war and we want all of them to be able to send their family to our health facilities and we don't want their family as our patients to be arrested or you know, interrogated in our hospital. So this is the way we manage to convince them because they all have an interest in let us, letting us work in this environment. But it's a long way to go. Oh, I want to explore further this whole notion of how you work with regimes that are so brutal that the state is the greatest enemy of the security of its own people. So one of the regimes you've worked with is North Korea. And Sophie's actually been in North Korea. So if you have any questions, well, let me ask you first because I'm sure it's on all of our audience's minds. Are the North Koreans as crazy as we think they are? Well, I think the North Koreans are not crazy, but the, the regime and, uh, uh, is definitely, yeah, in my view, a very crazy uh, regime. And the, the interest of the population is obviously not the first interest, that, that the problem we have. Second point is, yes, I've been to North Korea, but I have learned less about North Korea by being inside than by being in contact with refugees at the Sino-Korean borders and in other countries where they have the freedom to speech and to tell us you know, exactly what's going on in the country. So I don't take it as a middle you know, to be uh, to have gone to North Korea. But when it comes to working with um, this kind of regime, first, in our history, we've never worked in uh, you know, real democracy, or we've always worked in very complicated countries. Uh, at the very beginning, we used to work more in what we would call failed states. So this is also, you know, it made it easier also for us to intervene. Because there was no, no state, then we would just come and help the people. And uh, recently I was on a panel discussion with the Liberian Minister of Health, and he told me actually MSF was the Ministry of Health during the 15 years of war in Liberia because we didn't have the capacity and you guys were providing medical care. So this was, you know, uh, a time when in, in these circumstances we just try to uh, adapt and to uh, we, we, we're not administering the country, of course, but we're trying to provide the medical care, and it's, it's not that difficult. Now times are changing, and there are more and more um, uh, expectations, and I think very legitimate expectations from countries to control, to uh, coordinate aid. We're not the only actor. It's perfectly legitimate to ask for more coordination. So working in Sudan, in Yemen, it's very complicated in Sri Lanka. Uh, these are governments who have uh, uh, lots of requirements. They're also very sensitive to their public image. Uh, they don't necessarily want you to be in the place where you know, people need you because they don't want you to be a witness of what's going on. So it's a permanent negotiation and a permanent tension that we mentioned. But it's still possible to work in these countries. We are always welcome, and we have access to the population, and we think we are able to do a meaningful work. However, there are some countries where we've decided uh, that we, there was no space of work, and North Korea was one of them. In 95, we were uh, asked by the North Korean government to come and provide assistance to the population. And we, we went there. Uh, it's true that the situation was absolutely catastrophic, 
but we were not allowed to assess the need independently. We were not allowed to monitor the distribution of our food and our medical care. So after three years of negotiations, we decided to withdraw because we've analyzed the North Korean system. And this is a system which discriminates by nature. So if your international assistance goes through the public distribution system, this system does not go to the most vulnerable. This system feeds the army, you know, the uh, most loyal uh, members of the community first. So it means your humanitarian assistance is not going to the most vulnerable. So this is why we take the painful decision to leave. It was really painful, especially when you know there are needs inside. And what we did instead was to try to explore ways to assist the, the population through the border, because there are many, you know, the border between China and North Korea is, um, is quite easy to cross. There are lots of exchanges. And we tried to identify some, uh, uh, some networks of local aid workers and, and partner with them and see what we first document the humanitarian situation inside and second, find ways to, uh, to help them uh, also. So this is what we were still doing in a very low profile manner, but at least trying to maintain a link with this population. Last night over dinner, you told me a, an anecdote that I think really illustrates dramatically um, how wide the gulf is between the North and South Korea. And, uh, and it, regard, it was in regards to the 1997 financial crisis in, uh, in Asia and, and a conversation you had with a North Korean refugee. Can you share that with the audience? Yeah. Uh, actually, it was not a refugee. It was uh, uh, one of my translators when I was inside North Korea. So after a few days being in North Korea and uh, going to karaoke at night together and having a few drinks, you know, the, the, the dialogue is getting better. And we started to have a real conversation. And, um, and then he said to me, so you are interested in... Uh, uh, in humanitarian assistance, and obviously you're interested in South Korea, you went there already, I say yes, I studied there, and he said, but how many people died during the 1997 economic crisis, died of famine? And I looked at him, I didn't understand, and then I realized, because he explained me that there had been a total propaganda during the 1997 crisis in North Korea, saying that you know, the whole South was dying of starvation because of the economic crisis. So it gives an idea of you know, the gap of information and the misunderstanding between them. Let me just uh, ask, can people in the back hear all right? You hearing fine? OK. Terrific. A little bit. A little louder. So OK. So we'll you try. have to uh, <coughs> the opera Maybe voice. Nancy can give me a bit more oxygen. Yeah, no? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, David Reif is a very interesting and provocative author. For those not familiar, he's uh, the son of Susan Sontag. And he wrote a book called uh, A Bed for the Night that was probably the single most critical analysis that had been in mainstream publishing up to that time ever. Uh, that was extremely critical of how humanitarian operations are executed <coughs> around the world. And the key element of his argument was that once the Soviet Union collapsed uh, and we saw this flurry of ethnic wars in all the former proxy states that had been under the control in the Cold War and sort of suppressed, uh, particularly in the Balkans, uh, that humanitarian relief sort of de facto became the band-aid that perpetuated uh, such things as the ability to describe internally displaced individuals who literally had their homes stolen from them and were driven out at gunpoint from their own neighborhoods and thrust into homeless situations in other parts of their own country to call them a refugee which implies that they've left their country rather than that they've, left, they've been forced out of their home. And then to provide services for recognized refugees somehow legitimized that Serbian position, particularly in Bosnia and so on. In his analysis, MSF came out the best, though MSF took a lot of hits as well. 
And I, I wonder, when you look back now, this book is now about 10 years old, what, what you think about this notion that the humanitarian relief communities in places like Darfur have basically become enablers, allowing a tragedy to just continue forever and ever and ever with a refugee population that is actually internally displaced peoples, uh, kept locked down, fed, clothed, while others take their homes, their villages, their property? It's a very difficult question, especially because uh, we, we were among the, the NGO who stayed in, in Darfur for a long time. The way we conceive humanitarian assistance is for us, for Médecins Sans Frontières, emergency medical assistance. So the answer for me is as long as there is an emergency medical need, uh, it makes sense because we are trying to mitigate you know, the, the, the consequences of the conflict. We are trying to alleviate the suffering. Uh, we're not bringing the solution, the long-term solution. We're really trying to uh, maintain the people and give them a capacity to go over, you know, to go through this crisis. So as long as there is an emergency medical crisis, I really wouldn't blame the humanitarian community for trying to uh, uh, help the people. I think if all of us, in any, if any of us were in this situation, we would definitely welcome uh, external assistance. The problem is, when do you consider that you need to uh, shift from emergency medical care to post-conflict or to a more transitional process, and this is very complicated. For example, in, in Liberia uh, or in Haiti before the earthquake, we were initially in Haiti uh, to uh, provide medical assistance uh, during, uh, during the tension and the crisis, but the situation was quite stable in Haiti, although the health system was a total catastrophe. And we, were, we had uh, internal debates whether or not we should stay in this environment, right? So, and in Darfur, I think that the lessons we, we've learned uh, is that actually uh, there, there is a, a divide in the organization at the, mom at the moment whether or not we should have stayed in Darfur for so long. Uh, it's clear that for the population there were some needs, but was it an emergency and to what extent have we contributed to uh, make this population you know, stay and not being able to come back? Uh, it's very hard to say. What you should not forget is that a large part of the population we were taking care of in Darfur come from Chad. And in Chad, the situation has got worse and worse for the past two or three years. So there aren't many you know, political solutions for them either. And it's not the humanitarian community providing the political solutions, right? Uh, there hasn't been any political settlement of the conflict in Darfur that would have allowed the humanitarian community to uh, decrease its activity. Yeah, but, uh, you know, you were also based in Rwanda, and the big lesson that came out of Rwanda for the UN community was what we call R2P, the right to protect. And it was the notion that when you are witnessing genocide unfolding, the external forces that are not actively part of this internal genocide have a right to protect the victims of genocide, including through military intervention. And R2P has not actually been formally invoked yet, though there have been calls for invoking it in a few situations. One was in uh, Zimbabwe, uh, what, two years ago, when they had a massive cholera epidemic. And it was, a, it was clearly a cholera epidemic that was the result of Zanu Robert Mugabe's policies to destroy or not repair sewage systems and water systems in the areas that had voted for the opposition. So it was literally using cholera as a tool, if you will, to kill uh, opposition peoples, which mostly meant children. Uh, and as that epidemic widened and became worse and worse and then spread into South Africa, uh, there were many who said this is an, inst an instance when R2P should be invoked. And if this means that there's an intervention and external forces escort uh, health forces into the country to repair the damage and create safe drinking water and stop the epidemic, then that's the right thing. 
What is MSF's position on R2P? Um, well, first, we're not against R2P, of course, because who would be against, you know, calling for the protection of the, the population? Of course, we are totally in favor of it. What we question is the enthusiasm of the humanitarian community toward R2P, because uh, a military intervention means that you are, you are going for a war that you think is a just war, right? You have a designated enemy, and uh, you don't know the outcome. So in Sierra Leone, in East Timor, the outcome was quite quick, right? But it's never predictable. In Somalia, in Bosnia, it's been another outcome. So you're just one part of the uh, conflict, and your aim is to create a new political order. So the problem we have with R2P is that being a uh, an act of war, we don't think that the humanitarian community should be involved in calling for R2P. We think it, shouldn't, it should not be our role, because if we call for R2P, it means that we take side, and therefore we're going to become an easy target. And so that's the only difference we have, is it's fine to do protection. There is an exception to our rule, and Rwanda is our exception. And we, if I think that if Rwanda happened today again, we would do the same. We would call for intervention because it was totally, uh, it was overwhelming. But most of the time, we think that uh, humanitarian actors should refrain uh, from, you know, calling governments to uh, to send their military to. Uh, it's it, you create violence, and when you are a humanitarian actor, you're supposed to alleviate the violence, the consequence of the violence. You're not supposed to be part of this collateral damage. I've had quite a number of experiences in the field over the last 20 plus years, I don't want to say how long, uh, um, where I've been doing my job in the middle of a situation in which MSF was a key player. And I, I would say that I have seen um, very, very different and mixed responses in these situations. So this is where we get a little controversial. We'll see how we come out of this one. Um, one example that where I felt that the MSF operation was spectacular was uh, just, I, I, I thought they were heroes, was in the Ebola epidemic in 1995 in Zaire. Uh, and the entire MSF team was three people. They <laughs> made their way to this very remote place that was very, very difficult to get to. And we knew the key reason Ebola was spreading was that it was spreading inside medical facilities. It's a blood-borne disease. Uh, they had no sterile technique. They had no electricity. They had no running water. Uh, none of the basics that you would say constitute a decent hospital facility. And MSF said, okay, WHO, this is your, the part of the job you're going to do, and this is the part of the job the local Red Cross is going to do. We will take charge of building the water system, creating electricity, and helping to create hygienic conditions in this hospital. And within 48 hours, they had electricity and water. It was phenomenal. And I, I thought this was, they worked very well in a team. Everything went beautifully. Um, a very different example would be during the Persian Gulf War, I was uh, covering the war, and uh, a, the largest refugee camps were set up on the uh, frontier zone in the middle of the desert in a contested area that is sort of Iraq and sort of Jordan. Um, and uh, two gigantic rival refugee camps were set up. One was set up by Red Crescent, which is the Islamic version of Red Cross, and the other by MSF. Uh, as it turned out, there were no refugees, but that's a separate story. What happened was tremendous rivalry between these two over who was going to get the refugees when they showed up and who should get access to water and so on and so forth. And I thought the MSF operatives were very insensitive in the mm -hmm. situation. Given they were in an Islamic country, mm -hmm. should it not be Red Crescent that would take the lead? Um, the third example I would throw out for your comment or thought to provoke conversation was in Georgia, the nation of Georgia, not the state, 
well before the Russian invasion uh, and the war with, between Georgia and Russia two years ago. Uh, I was in the contested area of Singhavali and there was a, a very good MSF operation going on there to deal with multiple drug-resistant tuberculosis. This pocket that is a contested zone, are they Russian, are they Georgian, are they a separate nation, even though as a nation they're not much bigger than Aspen? Um, and the, the, this pocket had an extraordinary rate of highly drug-resistant tuberculosis and no facilities whatsoever that worked for people with TB. So the MSF operation was doing a great job of dealing with treating the patients. But I was upset because the way this zone was financed, the, where all the money came from was it was the headquarters of one of the largest pharmaceutical smuggling operations on the planet. Basically, the whole area was run by gangsters, armed thugs, very terrifying, monstrous people. And the main drugs they were smuggling were antibiotics, and that was directly fueling drug-resistant bacterial strains of all kinds of diseases in this region, and the people were popping antibiotics like crazy. Um, and, I, and MSF, mainly, I suppose, because of fear for their own safety, was not confronting this issue in any way. So uh, I think the final thing I would throw as this pot of critique for you to tear apart I think some of your other humanitarian and medical relief and global health groups often are critical of MSF because they feel you're not engaged in the sustainable side, that you're there for the short term and then out. Mm -hmm. And you don't leave a pool of trained personnel. You don't have a way of handing off the operation. So off and running. No, that's a, that's a very... Uh Fair point. We made a choice. You know, we could have uh, decided after 10 or 20 years of existence to expand our mandate to move toward development. Uh, uh, but there are so many organizations who do a very good job in that. This was also the time when the aid system expanded dramatically. So what we decided was actually uh, to narrow our mandate, to focus on really acute crisis, emergencies, so outbreaks, natural disasters, and conflicts, because this is what we did best. And we were not that good at, you know, development, long-term assistance. Plus, the problem is, when you are caught in a long-term program, these are a lot of resources that you cannot use for, to respond to an emergency. So we have to make these choices. So I would say that we took the deliberate choice to be focused on emergency. We acknowledge that we're not a development organization, but I wouldn't, so, I wouldn't say that we don't train people. You know, we have 27,000 staff on the ground. Out of these 27,000, we have 22,000 staff who are national people that we've trained. Before the earthquake hit Haiti, we had trained all the surgeons in the country because we were, uh, we were the only trauma center in Port-au-Prince, you know, to, uh, to conduct a certain level of, of surgical activity. So I could acknowledge that we don't, um, we're not there, we hope we're not there for the long run, although in Liberia we stayed 15 years. We've been in Sudan for 30 years you know, in Somalia for more than a decade, etc. So, in fact, we, we here for the long term. We are well known by the population. We do a lot of training, a lot of training on site in the hospital. Might not be enough, but... Uh, um, and we try to focus, you're right, in the medical activity. Uh, and this is why maybe I don't know the, history, the, the story about the tuberculosis uh, resistance, but... Yeah, I, I wouldn't see how we could engage in, you know, uh, chasing gangs and mafia, uh, dealing with, uh, we, we just don't know, it's not our job. I mean, uh, the people who are going to work for us are doctors, nurses, you know, logisticians. We send 300 American every year. Imagine I ask uh, a medical doctor to do an <laughs> investigation uh, uh, there, I, I don't think it would be reasonable. We would put our people uh, in danger, I think, if we, if we were acting that way. Well, I want to now give the audience a chance to chime in. We didn't get to a couple of 
key aspects of MSF operations these days, and maybe they'll come up in the Q&A. One is uh, your HIV AIDS programs, uh, and uh, others are, have to do with uh, women's health and maternal survival, but I see our first question, yeah, way in the back, lady. woman waving your arm by the window, behind you. Yes. Okay. I will. And the lady. Yes. She's referring to a situation that Sanjay Gupta broadcast on CNN in which uh, he said that MSF had abandoned all the patients uh, in Haiti and that he personally performed surgi surgery and so on, all of which was broadcast live on CNN, and then, uh, uh, the, then said that the next day the MSF personnel returned. What's, what happened there? Yeah, now I think I remember this bit. Uh, been such a chaos during these uh, six months in, in Haiti. There's been such a high level of activity for everyone. Uh, I, I try to remember this specific controversy. You know, what happened was that at the very beginning of the earthquake, we've provided some immediate surgical assistance. And we were lucky enough to have already 800 people on the ground plus our uh, material and stock was spared, so we could use it immediately. And we had the right resources because we were, prior to the earthquake, doing surgical activity. The problem was our hospital collapsed. So we had to set up a, a surgical block in a container. And of course, even though we have experienced people on the ground, it's very hard to ensure you know, st the good sterilization and all the process that it needed to conduct uh, good surgery. So at the very beginning, we did minor surgery in this very small container, and we would refer by helicopter to Santo Domingo the worst cases. And then a few days after, we were able to receive our inflatable hospital to set up good surgery, and then we upgraded the level of, uh, of, of, our, um, of our work in terms of surgery. But if I'm explaining that to you, it's, it's to say that there was such a gap between the needs and the response in Haiti at that time that the decision of the doctors was to uh, uh, prioritize life-saving acts. This is why there's been a lot of people who were waiting for being treated, but there was a triage for each patient, and the patients that could be saved by immediate um, action were treated in priority, and others were treated after if we considered that the, the, the pronostic was not uh, vital. And the staff has been working around the clock for like, I don't know when this incident happened, but I think it happened maybe it around, around two day, weeks. Day four or five. Day four or five. And uh, the staff has been working around the clock. The new team had not arrived. At some point, you know, people needed to sleep. And I remember that for this specific situation, for a few hours, some staff went, you know, to, to, to have a few hours to sleep. The, the patients were sti all stabilized and they were in the hospital and the staff were sleeping out of the, of the facility in the streets because everybody was scared to go back to their house. So th there hasn't been a deliberate decision of MSF to just quit one hospital, go to another place. But at some point, I think that uh, we just didn't have the capacity to, to do a 24-7. And, and once again, it was more to treat uh, the, the, prior, the, the prior cases. So this is my, my answer, but uh, I, I can get more information for, for you about this specific moment, if you like. But I doubt that our team you know, just decide to leave the whole hospital. And I remember how outraged they were 
when they heard about this, uh, this broadcast because they were working like hell. The, our national staff did not even go to see their family before three, four days because there were so many patients to treat. So uh, I don't, that's my... I'm going to ask Rich Besser here because he's from ABC and yeah. he may have a different reaction. Mm. It's a very difficult choice because... Let me just ask, did everybody hear that question? How do I we decide when it's not an emergency anymore and we need to, uh, we decide to withdraw from, from the country or to close the program? It's, it's always been a very difficult choice because in the mind of most of us, when the peace treaty is signed, then uh, situation goes back to normal. But it's not the case at all. It might take years before the health system recovers. And the question for us is, what do we do? You know, the situation and the medical needs of our patients were the same yesterday, but the situation has changed. So we have a, we've had a different way to respond, even in the same country. There's been, there, we've closed hospitals you know, overnight, and I think it was a mistake, and we all acknowledge now that it was a mistake. For example, in Monrovia, uh, we, transferred, uh, we, we transferred our last patients to another facilities. We made an agreement with the hospital, and then we closed the hospital within two, three days. But we kept another hospital that is still running for emergency obstetrics, for example. And we just can't close this hospital because there is no service available free of charge for a pregnant women who are facing complicated delivery in Monrovia. So it really depends on the situation. In the case of Haiti, the discussion was more how to ensure that the same quality of care will be maintained once we leave. Because we had set up this burn unit, which is the only one in, in the country. Uh, we had set up this trauma care center, which was also the only one open 24-7 you know, uh, and free of, of charge for the, the poorest. And therefore, we, we needed to find a way uh, to make it sustainable. Of course, the Ministry of Health didn't have the financial capacity, although we were working, we had integrated a lot of uh, stuff from the Ministry of Health in the structure. So the lessons we've learned now that, you know, we're starting again in Haiti, and uh, we're gonna rebuild the, this hospital, that's for sure, but we don't want to face the same situation in like five years, wondering how we're gonna do with this hospital. So uh, one of the ideas that we have for Haiti is to create a, a Haitian foundation that would own the hospital from the very beginning with a Haitian board and trying to help them to build their own capacity from the very beginning. It's new for us, it's not our field of expertise, so we're working on that. Uh, and we'll see if there is a, a possibility for us to gradually disengage uh, within maybe five, six years from, from this program. And it's going to be a pilot project in terms of handover for us. Well, there is one example of very dramatic impact of handover, and that would be MSF's operations in Kailicha in the township, like Soweto, but of Cape Town, um, pioneering HIV treatment that eventually was, has been absorbed as the government's standard of care and MSF can now walk away from it, but they've set up an entire program that is now how South Africa is dealing with HIV. Yeah. Oh, no comment. <laughs> no okay. comment. Right here in front. Perhaps this is related. What about in uh, Pakistan, Kashmir? You were there at the beginning. Are you still involved? This question regards the Pakistan-India-Kashmir zone and MSF's role there. So we, you're right, we, um, we provided assistance during the earthquake and then we withdrew from, from this area. We considered there were no major needs 
uh, after that. However, we've been running some programs in Pakistan for since then, mostly in Baluchistan, which is really a devastated area, and uh, the, the conditions are, are very, very uh, difficult for the population. The health system is, is not really functioning, and the situation is very unstable. Uh, and we are also running operations in the area of the conflict, in Swat Valley uh, and in the Fatah uh, area. This is one of the most difficult programs for us because um, it's very dangerous for our team because we are highly dependent, dependent on the willingness of the Pakistani military to allow us access or not. So every morning we don't know if we're going to be able to, to reach the hospital. The good thing are about... Are you allowed to have women in your team? Oh yes, we are allowed. Well, we have to because uh, you have to be a woman to, to, to treat a woman. So what is difficult is really to find uh, women to work in this environment. The good thing about Pakistan is that the level of the medical doctors and nurses and medical staff is super high. So we have very skilled staff available there. The problem is how to send this staff in very remote places, especially for women. You know, who would allow a woman to go and work for a foreign organization in, the, in a very remote place? So we are facing difficulties to provide uh, uh, enough uh, care for women in, in this area. This is one of our challenge. Back here. Jeffrey. Jeff. Uh, Please stand up so the audience can hear the question. I'd like to go back to where Lori began. Um, and she was describing Um, I, sh I guess I should, in fairness, say that Jeff yeah, Sturchio asked this question. He is currently the head of the Global Health Council, but before that he worked for Merck Pharmaceuticals and, and was one of the good guys. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, actually, yeah, the campaign was created just after the Nobel Peace, Fri Peace Prize, and we used the $100,000 that we got from the Nobel Peace Prize to create this campaign for access to essential medicine. I think that... Uh, the, the, we, we consider that the campaign has been a, a great success in you know, raising awareness about uh, initially neglected tropical disease, uh, but it has evolved around uh, HIV AIDS and uh, other issues, especially tuberculosis also, which is a major issue for us. And it's still a very powerful instrument for MSF to advocate, to uh, conduct analysis about the global health environment and to liaise with the external world. MSF, as you mentioned, Laurie, has a kind of isolationist tradition, right? But in the field of global health, I think it's not true. And thanks to the campaign, we have really opened ourselves and engaged in a, in a very broad dialogue. The challenge we face with the campaign at the moment, and this is my main concern, is uh, the connection with the field. Because any advocacy, and it's true for the campaign, but it's true for any advocacy activity. I think that advocacy is an essential component of our work, provided that it's grounded in our field experience. It's grounded in action. And the problem we may have at the moment is that, for example, in the field of HIV AIDS, this is so complicated to uh, provide treatment in this resource-limited setting, uh, to find the best approach to ensure prevention, you know, uh, to ensure, uh, the, yeah, to, to do prevention uh, of the transmission from mother to child, that the team are really struggling on a daily basis to provide the best quality care treatment. And at the same time, the campaign need, need to think ahead, right? about, okay, what's next, what's next available, what are the drugs that are coming. Uh, in the field of vaccination, it's, it's the same. We are, last year, we vaccinated 8 million people in Nigeria against meningitis. We have doubts about the efficacy of the vaccine we use, and we know anyway that uh, it's not going to last for long. So in three years, when there is a new meningitis outbreak, we have to vaccinate again. So there are very broad global issues that we need to address at global level, and the campaign is the instrument to address that, 
but we have difficulties to connect it, connect it with the field because our teams are not skilled in these issues. They are, you know, just treating patients and also they are overwhelmed with the daily work. So our, our job in the organization is really to maintain this dynamic and to feed our advocacy of the campaign with the data from the field, the observations <coughs> from the field, and what we've learned through, through our experience. We have time for one last short question, and you popped your hand up first. This is a practical question. How does MSF work? Where do the volunteers come from and are people paid full-time as MSF employees? So imagine you're a medical doctor and you would like to work for MSF but you don't want to leave your practice forever. So you would apply to MSF and uh, we could send you for a six-month assignment and then you come back and you're free from MSF but you can come back anytime. Uh, it can be six months, usually it's no less than six months unless there is a major emergency like Haiti, for example, or unless uh, you're a surgeon because we are desperately looking for, for surgeons. Uh, when you are in, um, in the field, you, are, you receive a stipend that is transferred to your bank account of about $1,500. You don't use it usually because uh, on the ground in the mission, you. Uh, you get some per diem, you get food and accommodation and you don't spend money, you just work all the time. So, um, or in the weekend sometimes you can spend a little bit, but what I mean is that after you six months you come back and you have uh, a little bit of money either uh, to be able to spend some time looking for another job or to pay for your insurance while you're in the field. So this is how, how it works usually. And whether you're a doctor or a nurse or logistician, you receive the same amount. Well, Sophie Delaunay, merci beaucoup. Merci, Marie.